This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to our Old Testament reading, which will be in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 24. Joshua 24, verses 14 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, and then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said then, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve. And his voice, we will obey. And now if you would turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll be going into chapter 6 as well. But this is where our sermon text will be taken from. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, as we continue our study through Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 11. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6. Therefore, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you'd have it open there to Hebrews chapter 5, um, we'll be looking from uh, chapter 5 into chapter 6 this morning. Before we do that, let's take a moment and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather in your house, as we gather under your Word, as we gather to worship you, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be stirred and that our minds would be cleared that, Lord, we would have ears to hear, eyes to see. And, Lord, we pray that we would truly be transformed by you through your word and spirit, that you would make us more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those in our church family that are having difficulty right now. We pray, Lord, for John Goodyear. We pray your hand upon him and Marcy, and we pray for the family. We pray that you would strengthen his body. And, Lord, we pray for these treatments. We pray for Kim Vollmerhausen, Lord, and we pray for her body to, to be healed and strengthened. And we pray for Paul and the family. And Lord, we pray for Sal Matei. Lord, as he's in the hospital, we pray that these tests, these procedures, Lord, all that's being done, Lord, would be used to strengthen him. And Lord, we pray for these dear saints. We pray for the many that are struggling, not just physically, but there are many who are struggling emotionally and even spiritually. God, we pray that as we, your people, come and sit under your word, that we would be lifted up, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened and empowered. God, we pray that we would be changed. God, I pray that you would use my voice, that, Lord, I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say. But, God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word and that we, your people, we would hear your word. And, Lord, we would become more and more like Christ, our Savior, your Son. We pray, believing you'll do even better than we know how to ask or pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Warnings, warning signs. 
want you to think about warnings. Uh, we come in all different shapes and sizes. Recently, our family bought a puppy, and we brought that puppy home, a little boxer, and he's been great in a lot of ways. He seems to have understood that we go bathroom outside, and so we're very pleased with that. But he gives warning signs to those types of things. He'll, he'll start hanging around the door. He doesn't bark. He just kind of hangs around the door. And you've got to be paying attention when he hangs around the door because you, don't, that, you want that mess outside the house and not inside the house. Well, recently, as I was uh, doing some various things, I noticed that he was hanging around, but I wasn't paying attention. And unfortunately... You know the rest of the story. What about other types of signs that we receive? Think about the tornado siren that goes off. We're, we're trained that on the first Saturday of every month at noon, there is the blowing of the horn, and we, we get used to that. But what if it goes off when we're not expecting? How do we respond? We've all seen the news footage of those individuals in places like Florida or down south where they experience these great hurricanes. And as we see, many of the people know that they're being told to evacuate. The warning signs are there, but they won't leave. They won't respond. See, warning signs are good. It gives us an opportunity to respond. Warning signs are given to us for the very purpose of responding. And that's what we see here in our text, warning signs. Warning signs that the writer of the book of Hebrews is giving to the very people he's writing. Warning signs. But how will they respond? Will they have ears to hear? Will they listen? Remember, this people seems to be wanting to abandon Christianity and to go back to their old Jewish ways. Maybe it's because of persecution. Maybe it's just out of comfort and understanding. But for whatever reason, they seem to want to abandon the truth of the gospel and go back to their old Jewish customs. We see in our text that the writer consistently calls the people out according to this. He has many times where he rolls up his pastoral sleeves. He, he, he begins to reprimand the people. He begins to call them out. And our text this morning is such a passage. It's a pastoral warning passage. A passage where we see him warning the people in very sharp language about the dangers and the perils of what they're toying with. Let's take a look. Before he gets to the warning, he starts with the root problem. Look at verse 11. About this, we have much to say. About what? About the teaching of Melchizedek and the high priestly uh, role of Christ. That's what he has been talking about. He has much more he wishes to share with those people so that they would celebrate the, the ministry of Jesus who is greater than angels, the ministry of Jesus who is greater than Moses, the ministry of Jesus who is the greatest high priest. He has so much more he wants to share. He goes on to say, it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Well, he says, because you've become dull of hearing. See, that's the problem, dullness. The word dull there is interesting. It, it actually means sluggish. The word literally means to be lazy. You're lazy, you're sluggish 
in your hearing. So therefore, these greater truths that I could tell you of the riches of Christ are hard to explain. Because you're dull. You're lazy. You're sluggish when it comes to the Word. In verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. It seems that these individuals have been walking in the faith for some time. They're not newbies to the Christian faith. It's not like one day they quickly decided to become Christians and now they're second-guessing themselves. These are individuals who have been walking in their faith, practicing their faith. And yet, their faith is weak. He goes on to say, you need milk, not solid food. There's images here that he's drawing for us. These images are of an adult who's not eating solid food, but uh, imagine an adult who's drinking milk from a bottle, just as an infant would do. We would say there's something wrong with that, and surely there is. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There's something wrong. There's a problem here. Rather than maturing in your faith and eating the meat of the word, you're drinking milk like an infant. See, these Hebrews have not been eating the meat. No, they're even struggling with the basic principles of Christianity. Look what he goes on to say in verse 12. He says, you need someone again to teach you the basic principles. You're not eating meat. You're you're drinking milk. And then he says in verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. He's talking about their spiritual identity. He's talking about their spiritual progress. They're children. They're infants in the faith, even though they've been in the faith for a long time. They themselves should be teachers, but they're children. They're toddlers. They're infants. Their growth has been stunted. This is the setting. And then he says in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice he's talked about the dull of hearing. He's talked about the sluggishness, the laziness, the fact that rather than being adults and mature in the word, they're infants. Something's wrong with these individuals. He has so much more he would like to share with them that would strengthen them and encourage them in their faith. But they're weak. They're not able to receive it. And this dull of hearing is seen. It's seen in their lack of discernment. Look at verse 14 again. They're not able to distinguish good from evil. They're not able to distinguish good from evil. Their immaturity was not simply just their inability or unwillingness, their laziness in listening. No, it was actually their sin of living the way they were living, which was contrary to the word. This is the problem. They're not hearing. This morning we heard in our prayer of confession where our own 
Westminster teaches us about the importance of the word, of how we should receive it. It it talks about diligence and preparation and prayer. It talks about the importance of receiving it with faith and love, of laying the word in our hearts. See, we don't come as spectators. We come as those who are being trained under the word, prepared, strengthened, prayerful. The writer then moves into chapter 6 and he begins to talk about the problem that he sees. He, he offers, if you will, six things that they struggle to even grasp. He talks about in verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And notice these elementary things. Repentance from dead works. And faith towards God. Faith and repentance. See, the elementary things of Christianity is at the very core faith and repentance, but they're not grasping it. He moves on as he begins to talk yet further. In verse 2, he says, of the instructions about washings. These are the ceremonial cleansings in the Old Testament, the pictures of baptisms. He moves on. He says, the laying on of hands. This is a picture of the ordination of the priest and how the priest would lay his hands on the sacrifices, things that they had seen. Or the resurrection of the dead, which Christ has come to make possible. And finally, he mentions another elementary doctrine, eternal judgment. He says, these things we should be able to move past. These things we should be able to move further along in but we're unable because the people here are dull of hearing. They're lazy. They're sluggish. They're non-discerning. These basic truths should have been well understood. These basic truths should be held onto and grasped, but they're not. You can almost hear the frustration of the writer of the book of Hebrews almost kind of throwing up his hands and saying, what am I to do with you? How how am I to help you? See, this really serves for all of us as a reminder of the importance of listening to God's Word, but also of practicing it, hearing and obeying God's Word. For that is how we grow in every way of our faith. But Then the writer moves to a very sharp warning. Look at verse 4. Probably some of the toughest words in Scripture that you'll find are right here embedded in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. The writer says, For it is impossible. Notice that word, impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those who once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up Him to contempt. Interesting language here, especially since we know that the Scripture teaches eternal security. The Scripture teaches that those who are saved by God are kept by God. What is the writer doing here? 
Well, notice the language. He gives characteristics of these individuals. He says they've once been enlightened, verse 4. These individuals have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. He goes on to say they've tasted the very powers of the age to come. These people have been as close to it as possible. And yet it says when they have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them once again. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John says this, they were not of us. They, they went out from us, excuse me, because they were not of us. Let me say that again. They went out from us because they were not of us. Notice the connection there. The idea is that they were in our circle. They were hanging out with us, but they left us because they truly were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. And Jesus says something similar in Luke 7, 23, in reference to those people who come to him in the last day and talk about all the signs and the miracles and all the good things they've done. And Jesus' word is simple to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, these are hard passages. And yet we must balance them with the reality of what other scriptures say about eternal security. We'd be forced to ask, who is this group of people that have been so close to it and yet are described as not being part of it? Remember what Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel. He says that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. In the Old Testament, there were those who experienced the blessing of God. They experienced the provision of his care. They experienced what it was to be part of the covenant. Remember, their shoes never wore out. They ate manna every morning. They experienced God's protection from his enemies. And yet, these individuals never entered the rest that is described. They never entered the rest. They're not identified as being part of true Israel. You say, well, that's fine and good, the Old Testament, but Hebrews is a New Testament passage. How does this fit within our story of our day? Well, friends, in the New Testament, we have pictures of these people as well. And those who are blessed along with the true people of God, who appear to be part of the true covenant community, and we actually recognize them as part of the covenant community. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, Paul speaks of them this way. He talks of an unbelieving husband is made, is made holy because of his believing wife. An unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. There seems to be a distinction that Paul draws to this covenant community. Another example, though, is seen in Acts chapter 5. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, you might remember it. Ananias and Sapphira were part of those who were giving to the church. And yet they held things back. It wasn't the sin that they held things back. The sin was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the, strict, the, the instruction here in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. It said to them, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse 4 says, You have not lied to man, but to God. 
Ananias, hearing these words, breathed his last, and he died. Sapphira, his wife, moments later, comes, and her husband's body has already been removed, and now she is confronted with the truth of it as well. And she lies, just like her husband, to which she has given this response. How is it that you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? And immediately, we're told, she died. Next chapter 5, verse 11, it says, The response was a great fear that came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Great fear. We can understand that. We read a text like this, we understand that this is, this is disturbing news. Not only in the Old Testament are there those who appear to be part of the covenant community but fall away, but also in the New Testament we're given examples of those who belong to the covenant community but fall away. The writer of Hebrews is writing to, for that very purpose, to disturb. He's writing for that very purpose to awaken, to warn. See, the writer is, is talking about the unforgivable sin. And people say, well, what is that? In Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but his guilt is of an eternal sin. Why is sinning against the Holy Spirit so serious? As seen in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, and here in Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 3, what church remember is the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who glorifies Christ. Jesus says, all blasphemies uttered by man will be forgiven except blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. Church, the Holy Spirit is the one who magnifies Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the message of the gospel. According to our text in Hebrews, the people he's talking about, that he's warning the other people about, are those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who share in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and tasted the powers of the age to come. And yet, ultimately, they rejected the witness of the Holy Spirit. They've rejected the message of the Holy Spirit. They've rejected the gospel itself as the Holy Spirit proclaims Christ. This is important to grasp. See, there are those who are close, but yet so far away. Think of Judas Iscariot. He was close to the gospel, closer to any of that than any of us could even understand. He walked with Jesus. He was even sent out by Jesus as one of the twelve. And apparently, he even did signs and wonders as the other apostles had done. And yet, we know that he was not a believer. Yes, at the end of his life, he showed remorse, but you never hear true repentance. Again, verse 6, it is impossible. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of Christ, the Son of God. But these individuals with their hard hearts, the rebellion to the true gospel of Christ, all the cross does is condemn them. 
In verses 7 and 8, we're told of a picture of these people. It's a contrast between a land that actually drinks the rain and produces a crop versus a land that only bears thorns and thistles. Both receive all that's necessary. It's very similar to the parable that Jesus told of the sower. Remember, as Jesus tells that parable, only one of four actually produce a lasting crop. The rest are choked out. The rest fall away. Church, as we hear these warnings, we need to see that they are just that. Warnings that are to be heeded. Warnings for all of us to take serious. Where do I stand with Christ? Am I trusting in Him and Him alone? Am I looking to Christ for salvation? These warnings are given to church folk. These warnings are called out to those who have been given the wonders of the gospel. But what are they doing with it? Are they sluggish and lazy and dull of hearing? Are they non-discerning? That's the problem. And so the writer offers this warning. It forces us to ask, how should we receive this warning? Are we hearing? Are we obeying? I like what one commentator asks. He says, what kind of relationships do we need to have in our churches if we're, so that we would be able to tell if a brother or sister was falling away? He talks about the intimacy and the necessity as, as the writer of Hebrews is able to call out those he's writing to because of his intimacy with them. And so he warns them. But one of the most beautiful things in this is found in verse 9 of chapter 6. May your eyes turn there. He says, though we speak in this way, in what way? In warnings. And telling you of problems. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure, notice that, of better things. We feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. And not only was there a root problem, and, and not only was there a sharp warning, get this church, there is an earnest encouragement. And that encouragement is found in verse 9. He says, even though we speak of this way, it's not so in your case because we feel sure that there is something better, something belonging to salvation. There's a confidence that the writer has in them of their walk with Christ. You notice the grounds he gives. In verse 10, he says, the ground is that God is not unjust. The ground is that God is not unjust. Verse 10 says it this way, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, they had fruit. And the writer notices that and the writer celebrates that and he points it out to him that God is not just because that fruit testifies of your faith. God is not unjust. But then he moves into the call for perseverance. Look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
Notice the call there. Perseverance. We desire this for you. Notice the way he talks. He talks in community. He doesn't just talk as an individual. He's not talking just as a pastor. He's talking about as one of the saints. We earnestly desire this for you. An earnestness. A full assurance. Till the end. That's perseverance. Persevering to the end. The expectation is that they will persevere to the end. That they will continue on. Notice verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. He combats their problem. By being faithful to the end, they won't be sluggish. By being faithful to the end, they won't be dull. They won't be lazy. But what they're going to be, he says, is imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Notice the call. The expectation. That's the same expectation that the writer would have for us. To follow the example. What is he referencing? Well, he's about to tell us in Hebrews chapter 11 when he gives us the hall of faith and he names names as he names people like Abraham and Moses. He mentions these individuals because it was through faith and patience that they inherited the promise. And yet, interesting enough, these same individuals were weak. These same individuals backslid. I mean, think about it. Moses would get angry. He would strike the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. Abraham would ask his wife Sarah to lie for him. Not just once, but twice. They were weak. They were broken. They were sinful people just like us. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, look at them. What was the difference? Their perseverance till the end. Their faithfulness till the end. See, that's the confidence we can have. Because finishing to the end isn't about us, but about God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Perseverance is made possible through God. And what means does God provide? The writer of Hebrews has already told us, his word. The word is the means that God has provided because it's through the word and spirit that we are strengthened in our faith, that we are encouraged in our walk, that we're instructed to obey and guided and empowered It's our jobs to hear, our jobs to obey the word of God, our jobs not to be sluggish or lazy or dull, but our job is to be like the land that drinks in the rain and produces a crop, but all the while knowing it's fully by God's grace that we produce. Just like the catechism reminds us, we need to be diligent with the word we need to be in preparation with the word we need to be in prayer over the word we need to receive the word with faith and love we need to lay the word up in our hearts and notice this we need to practice it in our lives that's what it means to persevere that's the distinction of abraham and moses and all those who are listed out in hebrews chapter 11 It's not that they were perfect or sinless on their own. 
They weren't. Their righteousness was found in Christ just like it is for us. Just like the writer was saying it was for all of those to whom he was writing. But the difference is the perseverance, the trust, the faithfulness. Church, there is true comfort here in this last portion. There is true comfort in in knowing that God is the one who provides the perseverance, but we are called and distinguished by faithfulness. The Word of God matters. Faithfulness should be in hearing it and obeying it. The warning of Scripture is clear. There will be those who hear it, but do not trust it. And they will depart from him on the last day, and he will say, I never knew you. And yet we can be encouraged, even in our our disobediences, even in our failures, because God is faithful. We seek to be faithful as well, but it's through his grace that we ourselves are faithful. John Calvin, I think, summarizes it well when he says, True peace, the peace you long for, even in passages like this, is found nowhere but in Christ. Resting in Christ. Holding on to Christ. Persevering in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 tells us to cling to Christ. It says it this way, the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, Christ. Cling to Christ persevere in Christ, rest in Christ, live in Christ, have faith in Christ. These are all the ways the Scripture calls us to persevere in Jesus. Church, may we persevere and may we rest in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, these passages of pastoral instruction what well, times can be tough. We know are good for us. They call us to be faithful and diligent. They, they call us to examination. They call us to truly look at our hearts. And Lord, I pray for any of us that have been becoming dull, lazy, sluggish with the word. God, spark us this morning with an urgency to know you better, to walk with you more faithfully. Help us not just to presume upon the fact that what we once had, but may we cling to continuing to walk in that faith, growing ever deeper from milk to meat, maturing in our faith, a maturity that you provide through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, and God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.